0: Well, good morning again. Welcome, everyone. And if you're new to Fullness, we're glad that you're here. Um, I know that we have some new people who have come for various reasons. Some have come specifically because they've been attached to Gabe for Gabriel. I'm going to call him Gabe. I'm sorry uh, for those, uh, you know, I still high school days. So um, to Gabriel. And so welcome. Welcome to Fullness. What we do here is we believe in celebratory worship. A time to praise God to hear from him we believe in praying for one another ministry time and we believe in sharing God's Word uh, opening God's Word and studying God's Word so those three components you'll see uh, consistently on Sunday morning uh, as you come to worship with us and as Scott indicated uh, we really desire for people to be in relationship because we believe that Christianity is in its basic nature relational you'll hear that over and over and over here again that fullness relationship with God, relationship with one another, and though you can come on Sunday morning, and we're not a really big place, a couple of hundred, but you can still hide in a group of 200, and so we want you to be a part of a smaller group, which we call E3 groups, and we would encourage you to go to one and become a part and integrate into the life of fullness. We are doing a study on words from the cross as we head toward Easter, some years ago, Uh, Nate Ross gave me a book. He's always given me books. Uh, Usually, uh, honestly, usually they're just funny uh, books uh, because we have that kind of relationship. But one of the books he gave me was People's Last Words. It's a whole book on People's Last Words. Uh, It's really interesting, enlightening, and scary all at the same time. And so I just pulled some. Again, I did some last. We're going to do some every Sunday. uh, Some last words of people. Uh, Groucho Marx, uh, the comedian, he said, this is no way to live. Well, it, he was on his way out a- anyway. So uh, Marie Antoinette, uh, Queen of France, said, pardon me, I didn't do it on purpose. Now, why you may be saying this is she stepped on the executioner's foot. She, you know, Marie Antoinette got her head, you all know that, the guillotine? She stepped on his foot, so her last words were not, let me cake. Her last words were, pardon me, I didn't mean to do that. Very polite on the way. Richard Feynman, who is a theoretical physicist, say, I'd hate to die twice. It's so boring. John Adams, second president of the United States, said Thomas Jefferson survives. Now, if you know the story, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were rivals. And uh, actually, John Adams' goal was to outlive Thomas Jefferson. Unbeknownst to him, he did by like five hours. Uh, Thomas Jefferson had died that morning on July 4th, that afternoon. John Adams perished. but, you know, he couldn't die in peace because he thought Jefferson still... (laughs) That's a sad way to live, isn't it? Thomas uh, Edison, who was an inventor and businessman, said, it's very beautiful out there. Uh, He had woken up from a coma, was looking out the window, said it's very beautiful out there before he passed away. Beethoven... A famous composer who had been deaf for most of his adult life uh, said, I will hear in heaven. Uh, One of the most remarkable feats is Beethoven's composition of his ninth symphony, which he did totally deaf, Uh, which is, if you go hear Beethoven's ninth, you're like, how did a guy who can't hear write this? Well, he heard it in his head, which is where great musicians always begin with music. By the way, just a little lesson Uh, Composer Jean-Philippe Rameau said to a priest who was singing at him, uh, hymns to him, What the devil do you mean to sing to me, priest? You are out of tune. (laughs) Another typical musician, uh, (laughs) more concerned with the hearing rather than the heart. Uh, Composer Gustav Mahler died in his bed conducting an imaginary orchestra, and his last words was Mozart. Uh, Joseph Wright was a linguist who edited the English dialect dictionary, and his last word was dictionary. I guess you're consumed with whatever you do in your life at times so that in your deathbed you see it on the way out. Blues singer Bessie Smith said, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. That's the way I want to go out. I want to go out in the name of the Lord. Final words can be incredibly revealing. Uh, Jesus' last words on the cross, there are typically considered seven words or phrases that Jesus said on the cross. And the traditional order of them goes something like this. From Luke, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We looked at that last week how Jesus, how remarkable it is that Jesus dying on the cross, his first words from the cross can be for forgiveness. Not just who is they, we looked at last week, who's the they he's forgiving. Well, it's them plus I think it's us. All of us have no idea what we've done in our sinful state. So, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, truly I say to you, You will be with me today. You will be with me in paradise. We'll look at that in just a moment. And some other, the other words in traditional order, and we'll look at a couple of these over the next couple of weeks. In John 19, woman, he said to Mary, behold your son, John, son, behold your mother. Mark 27, excuse me, Matthew 27 and Mark 15 said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then in John, I thirst John 19.30, it is finished. And then Luke 23, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. The seven last words are phrases of Jesus from the cross. We're looking at these statements, and I want to look at one more today. But before I do, let me tell you a legend or a story that uh, is a traditional legend within uh, the church itself. Whether it's true or not, uh, is hard to know, but it is the, the, the legend or tradition within, especially the Roman Catholic Church. There's a legend to the fact that when, to escape Herod's killing of the infants, when Joseph is warned in a dream, when Jesus is an infant to, to flee and to go down to Egypt, that Mary and Joseph and Jesus flee across the desert, and they come to a desert inn. And at the end they stop, and Mary asks, is there some water with which I could bathe my infant? Uh, the innkeeper's wife said yes, and she got her some water, and Mary bathes uh, the infant Jesus in the water. And then the innkeeper's wife, according to tradition, says, would it be okay if I bathed my child in the same water? He has leprosy. As the story goes, when uh, the other infant who has leprosy is dipped in the water, he is instantly healed of leprosy. Uh, The child grows up, has a very tough existence, uh, goes through life uh, always striving to try and find himself, eventually turns to a, a group that didn't lead him down a good path He becomes, uh, ultimately, a a thief. And the child that was dipped in water and healed, according to tradition, is the thief at the right hand of Jesus who dies on the cross. His name, according to tradition, was Deismas. Uh, And in the story we'll see today, Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. According to tradition, Jesus saves this man twice, physically and ultimately spiritually. I want to read this passage from whether the story is true or not. I think there's an element of truth in the aspect that God saves us in every way possible. Let's look at the passage in Luke and see what it tells us about salvation. I love this story. I love the truth of the thief on the cross. It it will rattle your idea about what does it mean and how do I get saved. I mean, there are some things about this story that are uncomfortable to us who are churchy. And so uh, I, I like it for that reason, because it shows who Jesus is and the power to save. So look, look at the passage from Luke chapter 23, verses 35 and following. This is Jesus. Jesus is on the cross at this point. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. All right, you know the scene. Jesus in the middle cross, thieves on either side, uh, they're criminals. Uh, the word here, criminal, basically means uh, criminal. Uh, it means a lifelong criminal. It doesn't mean like somebody who just wandered into and it, it, this is not like the, the uh, Le Mis story of hey, the guy was starving. They stole his loaf of bread just to feed his family. These guys were crooks. I mean, this was their career uh, to steal And they are there on the cross being punished. And without going into too many details, this this fulfills the prophecy of 700 years before where Isaiah says that the Messiah will be numbered with the transgressors. Now, you can interpret that several different ways. Numbered with the transgressors to mean he's numbered with us who are transgressors. But more likely, it is a prophetic word saying Jesus is going to be considered the same as a criminal or a crook, the real transgressors, versus, you know, my minor piddly transgression. Never mind, we'll get to that later. Um, One criminal scoffs at him, but one criminal believes. One dies in lostness, and one dies to live forever. Same situation, same circumstance, same background, but to one, as Paul says, cross is foolishness. But to the other, it's, sa- it's saving. It is the power of God unto salvation. So today, I want to look at the conversation between the criminal and Jesus and to look at, just from this story, what does it mean or what does it look like to, to come into this relationship with Jesus and this whole idea of paradise and the, the future. So, How do we get there is really the, how do we get in the same circumstance? I think you'll follow along as we go along. So first is that the criminal admits his own sinfulness. Uh, He admits what he's done. In Luke 23, verse 40 and 41, he says, when he rebukes the criminal next to him, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. You might think, hey, this is not a major confession. In other words, he's not repenting, it seems like, of all of his sins. But he is acknowledging, I've done wrong. I'm getting what I justly deserve for what I have done. There's this element of pride that keeps us from saying this statement, I'm a sinner. I have done wrong. And none of us really wants to do that. Even in joking earlier, I minimized my transgressions versus somebody else's transgressions because we have this scope of things and says, look, As long as my balloon may only be five feet off the ground, but if your balloon is only one foot off the ground, my balloon's better, right? So we look at sin like that. We're barely, you know, we've all got dirt of sin on us, but our pride keeps us from confessing it. We don't want to admit that we've done wrong. We don't want to admit we'd rather die right there and then mock somebody else and admit our own sinfulness. That's how prideful we are. I think in some element, pride goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I want to be like God. That was the whole idea. I want to, yeah, I'll eat the fruit. I want to be like Him. Before the days of phones that have maps on them and GPSs, we, we actually didn't know where the heck we were going half the time. I mean, really, we had this thing called paper maps, uh, for those of you who are too even, and, and you know, they, did, they weren't really all that clear, and most people had trouble reading them anyway. Um, it would have been better if they had a lady next to them saying, turn right, turn right. Um, well, some husbands did, but um, back in that day, I, I have a pretty good sense of direction, and so when I've driven a place one time, I, it's pretty well locked in, and I can get back there, and I usually know which direction is north, east, south, and west, so I can, I can kind of get around. I, I mean, I've got a decent sense of direction. And so like every red-blooded American male, if I got lost, you know, I, I'm not asking for directions. I'm not going to, and Kathy would be, why don't you just stop and ask for directions? Because I can figure it out. I can get there on my own. And you know, at some point, I would get so frustrated that I would actually stop and ask for directions. And then, somewhere along the way, and again, I'm before our GPS and maps, I realized, you know what my life would be so much easier if I just stopped right away. How much time would I save, and frustration would occur if I just said the truth, dude, i 'm lost i don 't know where i 'm going. But our pride keeps us from admitting our lostness, not just in a physical map sense, but in a spiritual sense too we are Americans. We can figure our way how to save ourselves, because we're the greatest nation that's ever been. I mean, we've got that instilled in us, ingrained in us. But as I read to you from Ephesians, a dead thing does not have the ability to make itself alive. And you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins, but it's by God's grace that you're made alive. Admit your deadness. (laughs) Admit your Sinfulness, so to speak. The second point is this believe in Jesus' sinlessness. Believe in Jesus' sinlessness. Thief on the cross again says, We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. I, I watch 60 Minutes a lot. Um, I like 60 minutes. I know it's an old guy thing to do uh, to watch 60 minutes, but I have like brainwashed some of my children so they actually think it's cool to watch 60 minutes. So we watch Caleb and I used to watch 60 minutes together all the time and anyway, they interview prisoners all the time on there. I have yet to hear one convicted prisoner say, "You know what? You're right. I did it. I killed that guy or I stole that money or I yeah, I'm guilty. No one's guilty in prison, according to them. They're all, I didn't do it. You know, I didn't do it. Or or at best, they'll say, I was so jacked off, jacked up on, you know, heroin or whatever that I don't remember anything that I did if I did it kind of thing. As if there's blame to shift to someone or something else this thief, he says, we're being punished justly. And then he has this remarkable statement, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now, you may look at that and say, well, what he means is, you know, he, he, he's not guilty of thieving like us. But I think in a general sense, he's seeing the unjustness of an innocent man being put, put to death on the cross. Paul Uh, the author of Hebrews, if it's Paul or not, says, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You see, Jesus' sinlessness makes him the sacrifice that can pay the price for our sinfulness. Let me highlight this very quickly. And then in Romans... Paul, Romans 1, 2, and 3 are one of the most brilliant discussions of God's revelation of himself to mankind and our sinfulness that culminates in Jesus' righteousness. So he, it, it's like this. Paul, Paul talks about us, and he says, look, there's the sinner group. You know, God's turning them over to their own desires. And then there's the moral group, those who think they're acting right based on their own morality. Then there's the religious group who are thinking that they've got it all in line because they're religious. And then there's the God's people religious group who really think they're in line. And he comes to a place where at the end of this discussion, he just says, all our acts are like filthy rags. So whether you're sinning and God's turning you over, or moral, or religious, or super religious, you still stand guilty before God, because you can't make yourself right. And then at the same time in the discussion, he's saying, now you may think this isn't fair, because how can I be held accountable, not be right, when I don't know what's right? And he says, at the same time he's making this discussion, he says, hey, look, God has revealed himself through creation at the very basic level. God has revealed himself. God has revealed himself because you think you're moral. It means you have a conscience. And God has placed a conscience within you, the spark of godliness or truth that may be corrupt, but at the same time, it's there and it's leading you to God. Then he comes up and says, and then there's the law and the scripture, all of these things are continuing revelations of who God is, so that he says we all stand before God with no excuse, and we all stand guilty because no matter what we do, we can't save ourselves, and he comes to this place and says, basically, how do you get made right with God then if God is holding us accountable and at the same time, he's given us revelation. How does he? Because he said the most complete revelation of God to mankind is the way we're made right, and that's the person of Jesus. And then in Romans 3, which is the heart of Romans, really the core of what Paul is trying to say, he says this, but now a righteousness from God, a, right way, to be, a, a way to be made right with God apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness for God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is the culmination of his argument. Am, am I boring you? Are you with me? This is really good. And this will change your life if you get a hold of what I'm just about to tell you. He says, the law and the prophets, they don't make you right. But they point to the one who will make you right. And that is the person of Jesus And then that passage, we all know there is no difference in any of us from the sinner to the religious guy. There's no difference. Why? Because ultimately we've all sinned. And we all fall short of the glory of God. What do we deserve? The wages of sin is? That's what we all deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then, I'm going to just hit these really quick. But it's really, I love this picture because it, it, it reveals what Christ was doing on the cross for us that then makes us alive. He says these are three phrases that follow, and they're, I've separated them, but they're, they're in order and according to the scripture. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. The word justified here is a courtroom analogy. Just Justice, justified. You've been declared not guilty. Of uh, the sin, for which you deserve death. Why? Because it's God's grace. You didn't. You don't come before Him and say, "Hey, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. I didn't do it." And you try to convince Him that you didn't do it. No, He knows you did it. You know you did it. All of creation knows you did it. But God is so rich in grace because of what He did on cross, on the cross through Christ. He declares you. Not guilty. It's a courtroom analogy. And then he's got a marketplace analogy where he says, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is the idea of buying back something. So you were God's to begin with, but you wandered away. But what Christ did for you on the cross is he has now bought you back. He's purchased you through the work of Christ on the cross. And the third analogy, which I think is just an incredible analogy. He says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This is more of a religious analogy. So you've got the judicial, the marketplace, if you were, and the church, spiritual, I hate to use the term religious because I bulk at the term religion, but it's that spiritual analogy, which is this. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. I, I, I know most of you, you think of the Ark of the Covenant, first mind Raiders of the Lost Ark, you think Indy's out in the, you know, it's in Smithsonian somewhere. But anyway, in the temple, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and on the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant were these cherubim on either side, and the top of the lid, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the top of the ark as a sign of paying the price. And really the term atonement here and the whole analogy is that God's wrath is turned towards sin because he's a holy God. And so what the priest was doing was he was appeasing. I hate to use that term because we're going to think in weird terms. But look at it like this. Your sin is blocking you from a relationship with God. He sees the sin and, and his wrath is turned toward it. So what the high priest was doing was he was sprinkling the blood on the top of the ark to kind of pay the price for the sins of the Jewish people on this day of atonement so that God could be in relationship with his people. And really, uh, it, the picture is really that the presence of God would come and rest The glory of God would come and rest on the ark. And this top of the lid between the cherubim is called the mercy seat. It's the word hilasterion in other passages in the Bible, in the Greek. And so here's the mercy seat where the blood is sprinkled. And what Paul is saying is he used the same Greek word of Jesus as mercy seat. So he's saying Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus paid the price. Your sins have been atoned for. They're no longer creating this boundary. Isn't that beautiful that Jesus is doing this? His, and the only way it could happen is because he was sinless. His sinlessness and his sacrifice provides a way that we can be declared not guilty, that we can be bought back by God, and our sins can be taken care of, atoned for. And if you don't think the cross was so great, look what Paul goes on and says, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Again, this is a rich passage, and I, I'm, I don't have as much time, but He's, Paul is saying, oh, when the priest used to go in and sprinkle the blood on, he wasn't paying the ultimate price. He was just delaying payment. He was refinancing the home, so to speak, for a period of time. It's going to come due, but it wasn't due right then. What happens is when Jesus dies, all those sins that were not really punished for, Jesus paid the price for them too. On that day, for and not only that, But for those who will be, us, past, present, future, your sins are taken care of. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are no longer, so to speak, a sinner. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And you say, wait a minute, you don't know what I did yesterday. You know what? Here's the incredible news. The cross still covered it. The price was still paid. Christ doesn't have to go back and pay it again. That's why you can walk in forgiveness. Again, this message of grace is so good that you say, wait a minute, I should just keep on sinning because if it's going to get covered, Paul takes care of that in the next chapter coming up and basically says, heck no. Except he says it pretty strong. He says, so should I keep on sinning so that grace could abound more? Mm, Heaven forbid. Except he's not really saying heaven. I mean, he's saying, heck no. Don't do it. Why? Because grace is that great. It changes your heart. It changes your life. And that gets to the third point, which is this. Commit your life to Christ. Commit your life to Christ. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Sorry, let me get to the passage. Here's the incredible thing. Some of us would say, well, yeah, that dude had it easy. I mean, he's just about to die. How long could he commit his life to Christ for, really? I could last that long. I could make it till then without doing too much bad. It's not the idea. I think his testimony on the cross is the most unbelievable thing. I mean, think about it like this. Jesus is dying in the middle. He says... The guy to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What a... Is that not the most unbelievable statement of faith when you think about it? I'm going to ask the guy, the dude, dying as a thief next to me, I'm going to confess he's a king. And that he has a kingdom. Every evidence of my eye would say that is not true. Because he's dying just like I am. But this guy... And that's where spiritual truth to me comes. It's got to be an act of the Spirit revealing it to him. That this guy is a king and he's got a kingdom. And he's asking Jesus to remember him. He's committing, I think, his life, what's left of it, to Jesus. And then Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This kind of rattles a little bit, our idea of what it means to be saved. Notice what the guy never did. He didn't come forward at the invitation time and give his life to Jesus. He didn't get baptized. He didn't speak in tongues. He didn't attend a new member class. He didn't join the church. He didn't take communion. He didn't tithe. He didn't go to Sunday school. He didn't go to a single prayer meeting. He didn't go to a single small group. He didn't get involved in any kind of ministry. In a way, he never really even said the sinner's prayer. I mean, he did, but not in the way we would. His basic cry was for mercy to another guy who was also dying. Which tells me that salvation is a free gift to anyone who will ask. That we cry out before the Lord. Now, how we get to that crying out before the Lord, I know there's a lot of debate on what gives me the ability to cry out before God. But ultimately, it is a gift of grace by the mercy of God, not anything I do or ever do that gets me into relationship with God. I think this story is phenomenal about how we get saved. Now, let me just say this too. All those, that list I read to you, I, I like all those things. I think you should get engaged in church. I think you should tithe. Hello? I think you should, you know, go to a small group. I think you should do a lot of things in church. Why? Because it's a response to the gift of grace. You got a little longer than the thief. I mean, he didn't have time to get anything. I, I believe in getting baptized. I, I, I do, but why? Because I want to show the world my Redeemer lives. This is the guy I'm following, and I do it out of love, not because it's going to get me anything. This is where the gospel gets twisted in a bad, bad way. It's where, it's where we think, okay, I got saved by grace, but now i got to live by law. Or I got saved by grace, now if I do this, then God is obligated to do that. Then he has to do this, or he has to do that, or... We, we, we just screw this whole thing up in a bad way. It's by grace. And Jesus' response is, hey, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Okay, let me finish this sermon out just by saying these three things about paradise. Um, and you can look at it in a fuller extent in the New Testament. But just these three things, it is immediate. What does Jesus say? Today. There's this idea going around that's been taught in the church at times like soul sleep. Like you fall asleep and then you're asleep until Jesus returns and then you get awoken. Um, But I think Jesus is saying today because it's immediate. It's when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's an immediate idea. It is intimate. Today, what are you going to do? you'll be with me in paradise. Heaven's a very intimate setting. I, I think heaven's got a lot of things going, going for it. Um, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of good things about, about heaven that uh, make me want to go there rather than going to hell. Uh, I, I mean, if I got a choice, I, I, I want to go there rather than there. But I don't, I don't like, honestly, this is my choice. Tw- I do not like the idea of floating on a cloud in a heavenly choir robe with a harp for the rest of all eternity. That, that to me is not appealing. I, I mean, maybe to you, if that's, and I like music, you know, I, and I like to be alone. But still, I, I, that's not, you know, or, or that we go to a church service for all of eternity. You know, again, I'm not sure that's what heaven is. I think it's the other place. Never mind. Um, But, I mean, really, that's not what heaven is supposed to look like. But what heaven has going forward is this. I don't know what it's going to look like entirely, but it is I am with Jesus. And there is an intimacy there that we will be with him in paradise. And, again, going back to my point, it's incredible. I I think heaven is an incredible place. We're reading this book. Uh, Craig is doing, where did Craig go? Is praying? He went to Starbucks? Oh, he's in the chapel praying. You could pray at Starbucks too. I don't know. But we have prayer going on during the service. That's our correct. Craig is teaching a class on Wednesday night. Uh, and we're reading through the book called All Things New uh, by John Eldridge, which is a book. It's kind of a wild at heart version of what heaven looks like. And um, it's really the whole idea is that we've gotta, we need to expand our idea of heaven. In the, in the new heaven and new earth and because we don't have any idea what it would be like to have an existence apart from the ravages of sin. We just, nature has fallen. We have fallen. Everything in our existence has been touched by the, the scourge, so to speak, of sin. So, you know, like, um, you know, even me and John Kerry, us talking, we're good friends. We've been around together for Good Lord, half my life almost now. Uh, John's been a part of fullness. And, but still, even in how much I trust John and love John and, and care for John, there's still in both of us this, did wonder what he wants. wonder why he's talking to me. I wonder what, you know, that sin's nature still, we can't get rid of it totally. In heaven, it's gone. Can you imagine talking to, just think about this, a man talking to a woman without the woman feeling like, you know, in this day and age, oh, I wonder what he wants. Just the joy of relationship. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the last battle, he has this picture. This is just for me, by the way, but I'll share it with you. He uh, has this picture of them running, and they run without getting tired. And they run without breathing hard. And they run. Now, I like, I love to run. So for me, it's just a picture of what is it going to be? I, I don't know, but this I know it will be incredible. It'll be so much better than a church service that lasts for all eternity. What does it mean to work without struggling against nature? No more litter, no more climate change, no more hurricanes, no more school shootings, no more sexual harassment, no more. People will actually get along with people. Animals. I think animals are going to be there. Now, this is my own. I don't think lamb laying down with the lion is just a figurative part of speech, but that's me. I don't think there'll be cats, little cats in heaven. That's that's just me too, but I don't really think there'll probably be country music. Or if there is, it's like it's whole section. But again, that's my, that's, you know, that's my picture of, uh, I know, I know I'm going dangerous. An incredible plate. Just think about it. And how do we walk into this? We walk into it. Because it's a gift of God through grace because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the, the crook on the cross saw something that every man and woman needs to see, and that's this, that Jesus Christ is a king who has a kingdom, who paid the price for our sins, justified, redeemed, atoned, so that we can be alive in him. Because of that, you're alive now and for all eternity receive the truth that God has made you alive. And if you're here today by chance and you would say, you know what? I've never done that. I've never made this confession. I want to encourage you. Today you could do it. You could make that confession. Don't wait till like the thief the last minute of the last day because you don't know. But why not live for him now? It's such a joy to be a part of God's kingdom and his power and his presence and his people. Pray with me, if you would. Lord, we thank you this morning for your finished work on the cross. I want to say, Jesus, to the one who died for me, thank you. Thank you. I thank you that you were not sinful, though I am. I thank you and believe that you died for my sins and our sins. And we trust in you today. Help us to live every day for you. Not in order to get your approval, but just as a response to the incredible grace that we've been made alive. We are your handiwork. We are your workmanship, created in advance to do good works, directly as a response to your grace in our lives. May we do it. We believe in you. Help us in our times of unbelief. May we follow after you. And Lord, right now, I pray that as we come to a time where we give back to you a portion of what you've given to us, that God, this will be a declaration that we're yours. This will be an act of worship. We don't do this because the law, the Bible tells us we have to. We don't do it because we're obligating you, God. We don't do it because... Uh, just to live according to some moral principle. We do it because we say thanks. We give, and may this small part of what we're giving back to you represent all of us. And may it say to you, Lord God, use it for the furtherance of you. Use us and everything you've given us for your kingdom's sake. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.